Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Today we are delighted to entreat you to another article. We are joined today by Zach Rissler and Jacob Avila. How you guys doing today? Doing great. Staying at home. Yeah, also doing great and also staying at home. Way to stay safe. Today, we are discussing an article titled Musculoskeletal Ultrasonography to Diagnose Dislocated Shoulders, a Prospective Cohort, published in Annals of Emergency Medicine, February 2020. Ultrasound in shoulder dislocation has been a cool thing for a while, and the idea here is that why do we need to shoot so many x-rays of these people when oftentimes it's either clinically obvious or we can discover on a quick bedside ultrasound that the joint is out of place and reduce it at the bedside. Now this has been studied by several other authors and we know already that ultrasound is pretty accurate for diagnosing not just dislocation but some studies have actually shown that it can find the fractures just as well. These authors wanted to do an even better study than what's done before and introduce their own way to diagnose the dislocation. Hopefully they were also going to tackle some patient-centered outcomes like does this actually save time compared to traditional x-ray. So let's see what they did. Zach, can you fill us in on how they tackled this study? Yeah, Mike. So this was a multi-center prospective observational study. So multi-center, which is always good. Prospective, also always good. They included adults who uh, were able to consent when the investigator was present. They excluded people who had multiple traumas, unstable, decreased level of consciousness, and the people that wouldn't consent. So pretty standard stuff. The design of the study was pretty simple, but I think it got its point across. So they did a pre-scan after an H&P, either before or after the x-ray. So they didn't kind of mess up the flow of the patient's care based on the ultrasound, which I think was good. Uh, After the shoulder was confirmed out, the treating physician would reduce the shoulder in any way that they felt was appropriate. And then there was a post-reduction ultrasound that they completed. The things that they looked for was, was there a dislocation? Yes or no. Was there a fracture? Yes or no. How long did it take to do the ultrasound? And then the confidence that the scanner had that they were correct. They also measured the distance between the glenoid rim to the humerus to try to quantify the dislocation. I really like that part just to add a little bit more than has kind of been done in the past. So they compared their ultrasounds to x-rays read by attending radiologists, board certified attending radiologists, and that was kind of their criterion standard. So their primary outcome was the sensitivity and specificity of POCUS compared to x-ray. Their secondary outcomes included time to acquisition, optimal distance to differ dislocation from normal, the accuracy of fracture identification, uh, confidence in their scans, and time for x-ray versus ultrasound. So all the ultrasounds were done by uh, either fellows or fellowship-trained emergency physicians. So the scan itself, and this is kind of the novel part of this study, 
So they use the curvilinear or the linear probe. 81% of the time they use the curvilinear probe. And that's what I use most of the time. Is that what you guys use? I use it about 81% of the time. I use it about 80.5% of the time. So a little bit less than you, but I think that it's still kind of very similar. All that to say, it's usually the the curvilinear. I mean, unless they're like super tiny or they have like no muscle mass whatsoever, like I might use the linear, but I feel like the linear, it's like too zoomed in, whereas the curvilinear kind of gives me a a way broader of a view. So it's a lot easier to pick out those dislocations. Yeah, I completely agree. It gives me kind of a, a lay of the land of what I'm looking at kind of surrounding anatomy. So they looked in the transverse plane and they started kind of on the back at the spine of the scapula. Then they slid laterally to the scapular notch then to the glenoid fossa, and then the humeral head. So from there, they would identify if there was a dislocation. And then from there, they could fan to look for fractures, and then they measured. So that was kind of the scan. There will be some videos in the paper that kind of help illustrate what we just talked about. It is a little bit hard to kind of understand just hearing it. So I definitely recommend going and check that out. So that's the study they did. What did they find? So for their results, they ended up including 65 of their subjects and no patients were excluded, which in my, that's great. And in my clinical practice with shoulder ultrasound, like I've never had a patient say like, no, thanks. Like, I don't want you to do the ultrasound. Um, Their body mass index, it was a little on the, I guess, lower side compared to patients that I see. So their average BMI was 27.4 kilograms, which is probably a little bit smaller than most of my patients. Um, 32% of them had a history of dislocations. 43% got them from ground level falls. Now out of their entire 65 patients that I included, 49% had shoulder dislocation, which is probably close to what I see in my patient population, about maybe half, a little less than half, maybe have the shoulder dislocation when I clinically suspect it. Although they do say later on in their kind of discussion section that it's lower than some of the other studies. Now, when I first saw this study, you guys, I was a little bit like scared because in my opinion, like, I don't know how ultrasound can be like not accurate with this. And so I'm like, I'm like, oh man, this is an annals. It's multi-centered. It seems like it's a, a well-run study. And I was a little bit scared that the results weren't going to be like great, but I was not scared after I read it. It was great results. The sensitivity and specificity of point of care ultrasonography to diagnose those shoulder dislocations was 100% and 100% respectively. So they were 100% accurate in diagnosing the presence or absence of shoulder dislocations. Now, 27 of those 32 had ultrasound done again post-reduction. so they, there was five of them that, that were missing, but out of the 27 that they actually did, they also showed 100% accuracy for diagnosing that, um, that dislocation, which I'm really excited about. Now, one of the things that we were excited about was that they actually measured a glenohumeral distance uh, as a marker of, you know, if this distance is greater than this distance then it is a dislocation versus not. Their mean glenohumeral distance for anterior dislocations was negative 1.83 centimeters, and it was 0.22 centimeters for non-dislocated shoulders. 
So as far as a glenohumeral distance as a cutoff for their dislocations, they found that the optimal cutoff for their glenohumeral distance was negative 0.46 centimeters for their anterior dislocations. They, they also have a number for posterior dislocations, but they state that it's really, it's only two of their patients had the posterior dislocations. So they don't really want us to draw a conclusion from that. But I do like that they had that number of 0.46 as far as their cutoff. And remember, because it's an anterior dislocation and we're viewing the shoulder from the posterior, that's why that number is negative. So it's saying that that distance is moving farther away from the probe. The humeral head is moving farther away from the probe in anterior dislocation. So makes sense. Now, as far as the fractures, um, for their 65 patients that they had, 38% uh, of them had fractures that were diagnosed on radiography. And of those, point-of-care ultrasound identified 52% or 13. So it's, it's not like a super great number. But here's the thing. The ones that they missed, most of the ones that they missed were Hill Sachs and Bankart's lesions, which those don't necessarily change the disposition of the patient, right? Which I think is kind of their point. And they, in fact, mentioned that. They said that if you excluded the Hill Sachs and Bankart's fractures, so we're talking fractures of like the neck and stuff like that, then ultrasound identified 11 out of 12 of those non-Hill Sachs Bankart's fractures. Now, in all this that they're doing, I mean, looking for fractures, looking for dislocation, that probably took like a really long time, right? Were they in there for like an hour or something? They stayed here as far as time, which is something that I wish that more ultrasound-centric articles would mention was the time savings, and these guys did a great job. So the total time required to complete the point-of-care ultrasound examination was 19 seconds. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so 19 seconds, so not a long time. And then if we want to talk about actual like disposition times, the time that was saved by doing the ultrasound versus the radiology, you know, x-ray, the time that saved was 43 minutes. Um, and that is kind of their, their average. So the time of diagnosis from triage by point-of-care ultrasonography was 51 minutes versus 101 minutes for standard radiology. Um, so a good time savings here. And I don't know about you guys, but this 19 seconds, like it's not like extra 19 seconds. Most of the time when I'm doing my ultrasound, I'm doing it while I'm talking to the patient. So it's actually like, I'm just doing it at the same time as something else. So it's actually, for me, if you just count total, like encounter time would probably be like zero seconds. Yeah, I completely agree. I bring the ultrasound in, I talk to them, I scan them at the same time. Now I have a little bit of a question about the time savings. And we've talked about this before in other articles. Oftentimes when they're talking about the time savings, it's a little bit less clear if that actually is saving you provider time. Because I think the way that they calculated this time to x-ray was from the time that the radiologist read the x-ray. I don't know about you guys, but I feel pretty good about figuring out if a shoulder is dislocated by looking at my own x-rays. So I don't know if they calculated the time from the person doing the ultrasound to figure out if it was dislocated and then waiting for the radiologist to read it, but that might inflate the time in the x-ray side of things and make it a little bit unfair of a comparison. That's a good yeah, point. I, I agree, and I think that you're spot on with how you read the paper. 
I really think they should have gone from their read of the x-ray. And it's difficult because um, in this case, the physician doing the ultrasound was not the person caring for the patient either. So again, if you have somebody that's entirely just devoted to the diagnostic imaging, that also will keep their time nice and short, whereas the physician caring for the patient has probably a lot of other patients and a lot of other things going on, and that time may, again, be a little bit longer. Not to say this isn't impressive. I mean, it still only took 19 seconds, and I can't possibly imagine that the x-ray could have been even performed in less time than that. So I think that there's still a very high chance that ultrasound will save you time in this case. I also like the idea that someone was in the room with a stopwatch, just click, 19 seconds later, click. Yeah, they did this study right. I mean, this was well done from top to bottom. They had a good design. They really spelled out all their methods and got the right data points. So I was, I really liked this study. And I think that it really adds, especially to some of our previous understanding of the accuracy of shoulder ultrasound for dislocation. And like Jacob said, I was also relieved and delighted to see that the results were favorable towards ultrasound. So what else do you guys think about this? Was this a revolutionary way to perform shoulder ultrasound for you? I don't know if I'd say revolutionary, but I do like the fact that they gave specific landmarks to exactly where to put the transducer. Because, I mean, I think that most of us that do this fairly frequently, like we kind of know to follow the scapular spine already, but I don't think I've ever verbalized it that way. Like find the scapular spine, feel it. Because most of the time, even if your patients are like super fluffy, you can feel the scapular spine and that's where you place a transducer. I think that that's really cool that they actually put that into words. Although I don't, I don't know if the technique itself is like novel, like no one's ever done this before. Um, have you guys ever used anterior and lateral ultrasound for dislocations? Because I didn't even know that that was a thing. And they actually mentioned that as far as other articles using that technique for their shoulder ultrasound. I've never even heard of that. Yeah. So I'll sometimes go a little bit more lateral, but it's always really posterior lateral, if anything. The only time I scan the shoulder anteriorly is when I'm teaching anatomy. The only other thing that I had a little bit of concern about was all this fracture business. Now, what I mean is, remember, first of all, that when they did their power analysis, that was for their primary outcome of dislocation. So this may not have been powered to show what they were looking for with regard to all these fractures. And overall, there was a fairly low number of fractures, especially when you exclude some of those hill sacks and Bankart's lesions that they did in their subgroup analysis. So all that to say is I'm not so confident in the ability of this ultrasound to rule out a fracture. Because remember, even if they look at the non-Hill Sachs Bankart fractures, sensitivity is only 92%, and actually kind of a large confidence interval dropping as low as 60%, because again, a, a small n that they analyzed there. So I think that becomes the problem because the idea here is that you're going to not do an x-ray at some point. I think that's what, what everyone's getting at with ultrasound. I guess theoretically you could do the ultrasound to get an idea that it's dislocated first and then still get an x-ray. But I think the point is maybe we can forego the x-ray either pre or post or both. So not being able to confidently 
rule out a fracture makes me a little bit nervous if we're going down that road. What do you guys think? So for me, I think that if it's a low energy mechanism, so, you know, we get these chronic dislocators that they're like, I just lifted my arm above my head and it's dislocated. Like for those guys, like you don't, they don't have a fracture. Come on. Like they do not have a clinically significant fracture. However, if I have a patient that is like never, you know, dislocated um, and fell off of a, you know, off of a wall, 10 feet onto their arm, like I'm for sure going to get the x-ray because like the chance of fractures are um, pretty high. So I'm not going to blanket state that on all cases of suspected shoulder dislocation, ultrasound always is going to be enough. Um, in certain cases for sure, but in other cases, like I'm going to get the x-ray because ultimately, you know, ultrasound is something to assist me. I'm not like, you know, so invested in ultrasound that I think it's the only way to manage my patients. If I think an x-ray is necessary for that fracture, I'm going to get, you know, that x-ray. Additionally, what I'd be interested in finding out is what the utility, even if, you know, there was a bad mechanism, you got that first x-ray pre-reduction. I don't, I think in that situation, if I don't find it on the first x-ray, I'm probably comfortable not doing a post-reduction x-ray and doing the ultrasound instead. I think that there's utility in that, um, even if it's a high mechanism. What if during the reduction, you pull your patient off the bed and he lands on his shoulder? Great question. <laughs> I wonder if we can do a intra-fall ultrasound. <laughs> that would be the gold standard. Okay. Any last thoughts from you, Zach? I also would caution that all of this needs to be done in conjunction with your consultants and orthopedics and really make sure that everyone's on board with what we're doing. Because the last thing we want is um, to kind of do this on our own and then specialists keep coming back to us yelling, oh, why is there no x-rays? Why is there no x-rays? And, and kind of showing them the literature, getting everyone on board, coming up with a protocol that makes sense for everyone. I love it. Well, let me just summarize this study then. So this was a prospective multi-center study that enrolled 65 patients with suspected shoulder dislocation. And using their posterior scapular spine technique, they found 100% specificity, 100% sensitivity for dislocation. And most of these were anterior dislocation. They also found 100% specificity for non-Hillsacks Bankart fractures, although sensitivity of 92%. Their optimal cutoff for diagnosing an anterior dislocation was a glenohumeral distance of about half a centimeter. So that is valuable information there. And this potentially saved time to diagnosis compared to x-ray. Our take-home points for this study are that a novel technique of posterior shoulder ultrasound showed perfect accuracy for diagnosing shoulder dislocation and reduction. POCUS was 92% sensitive for these non-Hillsacks Bankart fractures and even less sensitive for the Hillsacks Bankart fractures themselves. And although there is a potential time savings with POCUS, it's unclear if this is a clinically meaningful time based on this particular study. So thanks for joining us as always, and we do commend these authors for performing an excellent study that really adds to our knowledge. If you want to find out more, go to ultrasoundgel.org. You can check us out on Facebook or talk to any of us on Twitter. We would be happy to talk with you there. One more quick thing. The 100th episode of Ultrasound Gel is coming up. We want 
you to be a part of it. By this, I mean that you can send in your audio recording or even an email of something you would like to see studied in the world of point of care ultrasound. What is your dream for the future of POCUS research? You can email your ideas or your recording to mike at ultrasoundgel.org org and you can be on the podcast we have received a number of fantastic contributions so far and i can't wait to see what else you send in so thanks for your participation in advance and now we will talk to you later i don't know but i could recommend quite a few octopus books if you're ever interested in